You are listening to a message from the Living Word community in Center City, Philadelphia. We are followers of Jesus Christ, called to love God and love people, to share Jesus and help people experience true life change that can only come from knowing Him. We hope that you enjoy this message today. Well, good morning, everyone. I also just would like to say Happy Mother's Day to all of the moms. It's a blessing to be able to thank the Lord for the moms that he has given us. As the video said, whether they are our natural moms or adopted moms or spiritual moms, we all have women in our lives that have played a significant role and very, very grateful to the Lord for that. Let's just open with a word of prayer as we prepare to spend some time uh, looking at the Lord's word together. Heavenly Father, I just want to echo the prayers of my brother Ephraim and also just want to thank you for the incredible gift and blessing of moms. Thank you so much, Lord, for your perfect design, for the design of the family, for the design of women being able to become mothers, and whether that is natural or spiritual, Lord, we know that in you, you make us a family, and we are brothers and sisters as well. But Lord, we are just grateful for your goodness to us, for your kindness that you show us, for the compassion that you show us in so many different ways. And Father, we do just pray for your richest blessing upon all of our moms, not just today, Lord, but all days. May they know, Lord, that they have a special place in your heart, that they've been given an incredible privilege and responsibility, and that they can look to you for guidance, for strength, for encouragement, and for hope. What a blessing it is, Lord God, to be able to pray for our mothers. And Father, we also want to thank you for giving us this time together today and, and right now, Lord, for giving us another opportunity to read your word together. And Father, we are so grateful to you for the accounts of Scripture that you have preserved for us. And today, Lord God, we invite your Holy Spirit to be here. We invite your Spirit to be our teacher, to be our instructor, to be our counselor, to help us to rightly understand your word and to help us rightly understand you, who you are, and what you have done. Lord, this is why you have created us. You have created us to know you. You have created us to love you. You have created us to enjoy you now and forever. And so we pray, Lord, that in this time that we will spend looking to your word together, that we would come to know you better, that we would come to love you more, and that we really would enjoy you. Enjoy a relationship and fellowship and intimacy with you. And Father, it's in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ, that we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Well, many of you realize that as a community, we have been reading through the book of Daniel. The last couple of weeks, we have devoted ourselves to reading a chapter of Daniel a day. And yesterday, we finished the book of Daniel by reading Daniel chapter 12. Before that, we read Lamentations and Jeremiah. And last week, Ephraim gave us an excellent message from the book of Lamentations, uh, a warning, as well as a message of hope. And so I wanted to spend at least one Sunday looking at the book of Daniel. 
because tomorrow we are going to begin reading the Gospel of Matthew, and we have schedules for that in the back, and as we often do, we'll be reading a chapter a day. So this isn't necessarily a Mother's Day message per se. A few years ago, I was asked to preach on Mother's Day, and I picked a couple of my favorite mothers in the Bible. I picked Deborah and Jael. The song of Deborah in Judges chapter 5 said there arose a mother in Israel. Deborah was an incredible mother. Jael was an incredible mother. Um, but today, I really wanted to get a message from the book of Daniel in before we move on to Matthew. So this is not really a Mother's Day message per se, but hopefully all you moms who are here will be blessed by simply hearing the word of the Lord. So Daniel chapter 12, as I was looking at the book of Daniel these last couple of weeks, and then specifically this week, trying to decide on a passage to preach from, I really did struggle. I really had a hard time putting together the message that you're about to hear. The first six chapters of Daniel are some of the most amazing narrative accounts in all of the Old Testament. Each chapter is sort of an isolated story in the life of Daniel and some of the other young Jewish men who were taken into captivity. And just incredibly gripping and encouraging and powerful stories of these individuals taking a stand for the Lord, being given incredible grace from the Lord, some of the best-known stories of the Bible, the three Hebrew young men in the fiery furnace, Daniel in the den of lions, Nebuchadnezzar's you know, crazy dream, Nebuchadnezzar becoming like a wild animal. I mean, some of the most amazing narrative accounts. So I was, I was, I was tempted to take one of them. But for those of you who have read Daniel or who are familiar with Daniel, you realize that in Daniel chapter 7 to the end of the book, Daniel chapter 12, things change a little bit. And it isn't really so much a narrative as it is a series of visions, revelations, prophetic words that are given to the prophet. And as we read these six chapters of Daniel, many of us find we're not really certain what it is that Daniel saw. We're not really clear what it is that Daniel heard. So these are six chapters, I think, that are actually a little bit more difficult to try to teach from, to try to preach from, just because there is so much uncertainty. But I thought, well, okay, Lord, let's just go for it. Let's just go for it. So we're going to read Daniel chapter 12. Now, part of the challenge of Daniel chapter 12 is it really is the end of a three-chapter section. Daniel chapters 10, 11, and 12 are all a continuous account of a series of revelations that were given to the prophet Daniel. So in Daniel chapter 12, we're kind of jumping in and reading to the end. And I will tell you right off the bat, there are more than a few things in Daniel chapter 12 that I do not really understand. But that's actually going to be part of the message today. So maybe you read it yesterday. If you did, a lot of this will sound familiar. But if not, this will be fresh for you. But let's read together from Daniel chapter 12. It says, At that time, Michael the great prince, who stands for your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress, such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some 
to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, close up and seal the words of the book until the time of the end. Many will go to and fro, knowledge will increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there before me stood two others, one on this bank of the river and one on the opposite bank. One of them said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, how long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? The man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, lifted his right hand and his left toward the heaven, and I heard him swear by him who lives forever, saying, It will be for a time, times, and half a time. When the power of the holy people has been finally broken, all these things will be completed. I heard, but I did not understand. So I asked, my Lord, what will the outcome of all this be? He replied, Daniel, go your way, because the words are closed up and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, made spotless and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of the 1,335 days. As for you, go your way till the end. You will rest, and then at the end of the days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. Daniel was a man earlier who was known for his reputation to be able to unravel mysteries. Literally, there's a phrase that says he was able to untie knots. He was able to be told difficult things, things that were hard or impossible to understand, and he was able to bring clarity to those things. And of course, in the parlance of the Babylonian court, it was because he had the spirits of the gods in him. That's how the Babylonian courts described him. But we know it was because he had the spirit of the God of Israel, the one true God. But we see here that he didn't always have the same amount of clarity. He didn't always have the same amount of ability to understand everything, even that was being revealed to him. So what I want to do is I actually want to go through this passage three times. And I know you're thinking, wow, that's going to be a really long message. I don't think today is actually going to be that long. The first time through, I want to just answer a couple of really, really most basic questions. The second time through, we're going to kind of cherry pick a couple of things that are intriguing, maybe kind of pique our curiosity. And the third time through, we're going to actually come up with incredibly clear, certain, unmistakable truths that all of us can latch on to, 
even in the midst of maybe some relative uncertainty about other things. So the first point that I want to bring up this first time through is the very first phrase. At that time, Daniel is told in chapter 12, verse 1, at that time, some things are going to happen. So, of course, the question is, what is that time? What is that time? At that time, Daniel, these things are going to take place. Well, as we said, Daniel 12 doesn't stand alone. It actually builds on Daniel 11, which actually builds on Daniel chapter 10. So what was happening in Daniel chapter 11? Well, if you read Daniel chapter 11, you heard a lot about a series of kings from the north and a series of kings from the south, an incredibly amazing predictive prophecy about the splintering of the Greek empire after the death of Alexander the Great, the rise of the Seleucids in Syria, the rise of the Ptolemies in Egypt. You can actually lay history over that prophecy of Daniel, and it is an incredibly precise, prophetic declaration of things that were going to transpire hundreds of years after Daniel spoke it. But at the end of Daniel chapter 11, it becomes a little unclear. Is Daniel chapter 11 at the end talking about one of the final Seleucid kings, Antiochus Epiphanes? Or is he talking about someone who's in the more distant future, who will be like evil kings and do evil things against the Lord and against the Lord's people? Well, of course, here is where the discussion and the division begins. Biblical scholars can't even agree on who's being spoken of in the concluding verses of Daniel chapter 11. I think he's talking about both, but that's another message for another time. But within Daniel chapter 12 itself, he gives us a couple of clues as to what time he is talking about. So if we look at Daniel chapter 12, verse 4, Daniel chapter 12, verse 4, it says, until the time of the end. And then jumping down to Daniel chapter 12, verse 9, again, that very same phrase, until the time of the end. So the context of Daniel chapter 12 makes it clear that the at that time of the beginning of this chapter is nothing other than the end of this age. The end of this age. The time of the end. It's such a simple phrase, but that is what Daniel is being given a glimpse of. The end of this age. How does this whole thing wind up? How does this whole thing conclude. So the first thing that we are making clear, that Daniel 12 makes clear, is that Daniel is being seen the time of the end, the conclusion of this age. Second, general, is we see embedded in this chapter two questions. Two questions. Looking at verse 6, it says, one of them said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river. Now here is the question. How long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? So basically, the question in verse 6 is, how long? How long until the end? How long until the end of this age? How long until eternity begins? Jumping down to verse 8. Now Daniel himself asks a question. In verse 8, Daniel himself says, My Lord, what will be the outcome of all this? What will be the outcome of all this? So basically, Daniel's saying, what's going to happen? How is it all going to unfold? How is it all going to 
conclude. So when we are thinking about the end of this age, and this is something that the church at certain times and in certain streams has become fascinated with, there has been more Christian literature written in the Western Hemisphere about the end of the age, about the book of Revelation, about these chapters in Daniel and some chapters in Ezekiel and some chapters in Zechariah more than any other Christian topic. If you simply do a Google search for books on the end times, the end of the age, apocalyptic literature, revelatory visions, there are literally tens of thousands of books from which you can choose. So the church at times has become incredibly fascinated with this event and these two questions. How long? How long will it be until this age ends? Well, they were asking that question some 2,600 years ago in Daniel chapter 12. And Daniel was asking a question connected to and similar, and how will this all unfold? You may remember in Matthew 24, the disciples had similar questions for Jesus. When will all of these things take place, and what will be the sign of your coming? So, since the people of God have been the people of God, these have been questions that have been percolating within us. How long will it be until the end of the age? When will Jesus come? When will everything wind up? We've had some biblical scholars in recent decades actually believe that they could pick a date, could pick a year and a month and a day, and unfortunately for them and many of their followers, they were wrong and experienced incredible disappointment. So whatever we're going to do with this, and however we answer the question how long, we shouldn't answer it by picking a calendar year and month and day. And what's going to unfold? How is it going to happen? That's the second question. So, two important general themes for understanding Daniel chapter 12. We are dealing with the end of the age, and there are two pressing questions that were on the hearts of the participants in Daniel 12 and on our hearts as well. How long and how are things going to unfold? But we see, to me, one of the most important aspects of Daniel chapter 12 at the beginning of verse 8. I heard, but I did not understand. Now, this is the man who could untie knots. This is the man who could reveal all mysteries. This is the man that could not only interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream, but could in fact tell him what his dream was. This was Daniel, anointed in wisdom, anointed in understanding, anointing in clarity by God, as few others ever have been. He was exalted among all of the counselors of the Babylonian and Persian kings at his time because no one had wisdom, no one had insight the way he did. And look at the simple declaration that he makes in verse 8. I heard, but I didn't understand. So here's what I'm going to put in front of us. Probably, we're not going to understand everything. We're probably not. And the second thing I would say, if you are ever hearing teaching about these things, 
And that person is speaking with absolute confidence, unwavering certainty on all of the issues that they are teaching, I would be weary of them. I would be very weary of them. If Daniel himself, the prophet who God chose to receive these revelations, is saying, I didn't understand, then I think it would be an incredibly presumptuous on our part to say, I've got it all figured out. I know how this whole thing's going to work out. I've got all of the charts and all of the tables and all of the graphs and all of the cross-references. I have it all figured out. I'm standing up here telling you absolutely 100% certain I don't. I don't have it all figured out. Not even close. And so I would caution you if you are ever hearing a teaching or hearing someone speak and saying, I've got it all figured out. I know how this is all going to come out. I would really be very, very, very cautious of them. The way that God speaks of the end of this age is absolutely clear, but it is not absolutely exhaustive. There are certain things I am convinced are not going to make sense until it absolutely transpires, and that's okay. The Lord answered these questions. He answers these questions, how long, and how is this going to happen? But as the Lord often does, he doesn't necessarily answer them the way he, we would want him to. He doesn't just lay it out the way we might want him to, and that's okay. But one huge mistake, and I do not want any of us to ever make this mistake, is just to throw your hands up in the air and say, well, hey, if Daniel couldn't understand, why should I even bother? No, no, no. As I said, our third time through this passage, we are going to come up with at least eight incredible certainties, incredible clarities that we can hold on to from this. Just because we're not going to understand everything, just because we're not going to have every question answered, every mystery solved right now the way we want it to, does not ever give us an excuse to not pour over these scriptures, study these scriptures, and do everything we can to understand as much as we can. It's okay if we don't know everything. It really is, because God does. God does. And because he does, we can be okay with not understanding everything. That's all right. But this has been given to us for a reason. Not to figure everything out, not to try to become as wise as God himself, but to certainly understand as much as we can. So that's the first time through. That was only 10 minutes. Second time through, there are definitely some things and some individuals mentioned in Daniel chapter 12 that probably pique our curiosity. And so I just kind of picked five of these. There's probably more than that. But these are five that I thought it would be helpful just for us to spend a couple minutes talking about them. The first one is, at that time, Michael. So we are introduced to this individual named Michael. Well, of course, the question is, who was or who is Michael? Well, Michael actually makes his appearance in the book of Daniel in Daniel chapter 10. And he also appears in a single verse in the book of Jude. And he appears in Revelation chapter 12. 
Well, what we come to learn about Michael is Michael is an angel. He's one of only two named angels in Scripture. There is Michael and there is Gabriel. And it's interesting because Gabriel is also mentioned by name in the book of Daniel. And then, of course, it is Gabriel that appears to Zechariah and Gabriel that appears to Mary. So there are only two named angels in Scripture, Michael and Gabriel. Now, I know you can, again, Google names of angels, and man, all these incredibly bizarre and exhaustive lists of angels pop up. But I'm telling you, within our Bible, only two angels are ever named, Michael and Gabriel. And Michael, we are told actually from the book of Jude, is an archangel. Now, again, you can do a lot of research on angelology and the hierarchy of the angelic realm, and some of it is based on scripture, a lot of it is based on conjecture, because God tells us that angels exist, and that angels who are obedient to him do his bidding. They're glorious, awesome, powerful creatures, part of his creation. They can manifest themselves when God chooses for them to do so, but for most of the time they are hidden from our view. But again, I don't think scripture really invites us to do an incredibly exhaustive study in the angelic realm, because we are only given glimpses of the angelic realm. But Michael is an archangel, so he's got some extra authority. He's got some extra power. Revelation chapter 12 says, actually, he's the one that casts the dragon out of heaven. So he's not an archangel to be messed with. But he is a, a character here. And what is very common in these type of visions, these type of revelatory visions and dreams that God gives, is for angels to appear. In verses 5 and 6, we are told there are two other individuals standing on either side of the river. Well, the river we know from Daniel chapter 10 is the river Tigris. Daniel was still in captivity in Babylon, which had now become Persia. But on the Tigris River. And then there's a third individual dressed in linen standing above the waters, who also is introduced to us in Daniel chapter 10. And even though we are not specifically told so, these three are probably also angels. And we see one of the angels actually asks a question. And when you have these type of visions, if you read the book of Revelation, if you read the second half of the book of Zechariah, oftentimes the prophet who's seeing the vision is having conversation with the angels. He's talking to the angel. The angel's asking him a question. You know, Zechariah, what do you see? Or Zechariah, what does this mean? And like Daniel, Zechariah says, Lord, I have no idea. Why don't you tell me? I know I'm seeing something, but I don't know what it means. So what we see here is very, very typical to have angels playing a prominent role in the revelatory vision that's being given. And in this case in particular, the archangel, Michael. Second thing that we see mentioned in verse 1 that may pique our curiosity. There's mention of a book. There's mention of a book. It says, everyone whose name is found written in the book, they will be delivered or they will be brought to safety. Well, of course, the question becomes, what book is this? Well, Daniel is not explicitly told, but we're given a huge clue. Everyone whose name is found written in this book is brought to safety. Everyone whose name is found written in this book is brought to safety. In the ancient Near East, there was a common practice that everyone who was living in a certain town or a certain geographic region, they were enrolled in basically a ledger or kind of like an ancient census. And these books or these records were called the books 
of the living. So if you lived in the ancient town of Bethsaida and you were at that time living there, your name would be in the book of the living of the time of whenever you were there for Bethsaida. Now when you died, your name was removed from the book because you were no longer living. So it was a census of everyone living, and these books became known as the books of the living. Well, of course, what the scripture does with that is takes it a step further. And the scriptures actually begin to make reference to a single book that it refers to as the book of life. Not the book of the living, but the book of life. The Apostle John is shown a vision of this book in Revelation chapter 20, verse 12. And basically what the scriptures declare is that everyone who has given their life to Jesus Christ, everyone who has been found in Christ, their names are written in the book of life. It's basically an eternal census for all of those who will live eternally with the Lord, the book of life. So what we see here in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, is very, very much agreeing with that position. All of those whose names were found written in the book, they will be delivered. Now it's interesting because in Revelation chapter 20, other books are opened, and these books are a little bit more intimidating because these are the books of everything that everyone has ever done. Everything you've ever said, everything you've ever done has been recorded in the eternal books in heaven, and those books will be opened on the day of judgment. But if your name is found written in the Lamb's book of life, you will be with him forever. So that is certainly the book that Daniel was seeing that was being referred to in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. Probably the most incredible section of this vision is found in chapters 2 and 3. Found in chapters 2 and 3, it says, Many who are asleep in the dust of the earth will awake. This is a reference to bodily resurrection. The only clear reference to it in the Old Testament. Peter found it in Psalm 16, but that was only because the Spirit was giving him wisdom to see it here. But here is the clearest reference to bodily resurrection in the entire Old Testament. Many who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. And this is how we are certain that we are looking at the end of the age. This is how we are certain that we are looking at the end of this reality and on the brink of entering into eternity. Because at the end of this age, everyone will be resurrected in bodily form. We see this again in Revelation chapter 20. But in John chapter 5, we see Jesus himself talking about it. John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. Let's just quickly read those. John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. Jesus says, do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good 
will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. Jesus is basically saying exactly what Daniel heard. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. At the end of this age, there will be a bodily resurrection. Whether you are living to see the return of Jesus Christ, or whether you have died and your body has been cremated or cast into the sea or put into a mausoleum or has been in the ground for a thousand years or 10,000 years and the bugs are eating it, that doesn't matter. Everyone will rise bodily at the end of this age. And as we see, there will be a great division amongst all humanity. Doesn't matter when you lived, doesn't matter what language you spoke, none of that matters. All of humanity will be divided. There will those who will rise and enjoy everlasting life. They will shine like the stars in the heavens. And there are those who will rise to everlasting disgrace and everlasting contempt. Now how all of humanity can be divided in half is very, very simple. Jesus is the great divider. Jesus is the great divider. Those who have put their trust in him, those who have given their life to him, they will be amongst those who experience everlasting glory in his presence. And those who have rejected him, those who have said no to him, they are those who will experience everlasting disgrace and everlasting contempt. It's become very unpopular to speak of that side of things, and I don't want to spend more time on it than Daniel 12 does, but I also don't want to ignore it because Daniel 12 brings it up. Jesus himself brings it up. There are those who are going to rise, hear his voice, come out of the tombs, receive a body, a resurrected body, only to enter into eternal condemnation. You know, if eternal condemnation is real, and it is, and if eternal disgrace and eternal contempt is real, and it is, you know, the most unloving thing that we can do is never talk about it. That's the most unloving thing we can do. If a huge portion of humanity is rejecting Jesus and they are going to experience everlasting contempt and disgrace and everlasting condemnation, the most unloving thing that we can do is never tell them. You know, our world has it completely twisted. The world says Christians don't love if they talk about hell, if they talk about the judgment of God, if they talk about the wrath of God. That's the most unloving thing that we as Christians can do. That's just straight out of the pit of hell. That's the devil. <laughs> I mean, that is just the devil. Because the devil does not want an unsafe person hearing that they're going to be eternally separated from God. So again, we don't need to be on a bullhorn on a street corner damning everyone to hell 24 hours a day. But you see, even the devil has used that stereotype to make us very hesitant to ever talk about hell. 
to make us very hesitant to ever talk about that bodily resurrection to eternal disgrace and contempt. We need to talk about it. Not in anger, not in vengeance, not with hatred, but the most unloving thing that we can do if we are convinced that there is eternal judgment is never talk about it. Is never talk about it. You know, years ago, a person gave me an illustration. Imagine that you're in an airport and doesn't matter how, you just absolutely are 100% certain that the plane is going to crash. You just know that the plane is going to crash and everyone who's on that plane is going to die. And you just stand at the gate and tell everyone, hey, have a nice trip. Good to see you. Do well. That's the most unloving thing you could do. Wouldn't you be doing everything that you could to try to convince each person before they got on that plane, hey, don't get on that plane. You're not going to make it if you do. That's love. Don't ever, ever, ever let the world tell you what love is. They will never get it right. They will never get it right. So at the end of this age, there's going to be a bodily resurrection. And for those of us who put our faith in Christ, praise God. Because you know what? Your resurrected body is going to enjoy the glory of Christ forever. And it's not going to get old, and your eyesight's not going to fade, and your back is not going to get crooked, and your hips are not going to get sore, and none of the calamities that plague our fallible bodies in this life are ever, ever, ever going to touch our resurrection body. What a glorious body that will be. And that's what's coming. So Daniel saw a vision of that. Old Testament, absolutely spectacular that before Christ came, some 600 years before Christ came, Daniel had a vision of all of those buried in the ground being raised. So, the end of the age. Fourth thing, two more things. These are just things that kind of pique our curiosity, maybe don't understand all of it. We're about to jump into two that we probably really don't completely understand. But in Verse 7, remember, one of the angels, not Michael, but one of the angels basically said, how long? How long? Remember we said, the scriptures are going to answer these questions, how long and in what manner, but probably not going to answer them the way we want them to. So in verse 7, that angel actually gets an answer. And what he is told is that it will be for a time and times and half a time. So that's exactly what God wants to do. God wants us to give us an answer, but not necessarily an answer that's going to make absolute sense to us. And that's okay. God is free to do that. So he speaks sort of in a riddle. And he says, look, how long will it be? Well, it will be a time, a times, and half a time. Now it's interesting because in Daniel chapter 7, verse 25, Daniel was told the exact same thing as he sees this fourth beast that was unlike all the other beasts that came up out of the sea that was different from the three previous beasts, there's also a time frame given to that beast. A time, and times, and half a time. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Revelation, that's a phrase that's used a couple of times in the book of Revelation, and Revelation depends heavily on Daniel's chapter 7 to 12. But Revelation also speaks of a time, and times, and half a time. But we are also given a couple of other time frames in Daniel chapter 12, verse 11, and verse 12. We are told there is going to be a period of 1,290 days. And then we are told there's going to be a period of 1,335 days. And again, 
I have not read anyone who has really been able to figure out what those two time frames are. And the fact that there's probably 20 different explanations out there should tell you no one really knows what it means. But it's interesting because if you take a time to mean a year, and times to mean two years, and half a time to mean half a year, and if you use the Jewish calendar, which is 12 30-day 30 30 months, you get 360 days in a year, Three and a half years is 1,260 days. So it'd be nice if we had 1,260 days here, but we don't. We have 1,290 days. And scholars have no limit of creativity trying to figure out what those extra 30 days are doing there. And believe me, then when you get to the extra 45 from 1,290 to 1,335, there's as many explanations as there are scholars breathing God's air. We really don't know. We really don't know. And that's okay. That's okay. The only thing that I would say about this is maybe we are looking at these time frames in the wrong way. Maybe we are expecting a time and times and half a time, and maybe we are expecting 1,290 days and 1,335 days to make sense to us in the way that we normally think of time. Maybe that's not at all the approach that God wants us to take, but that's a totally different sermon for a totally different time. We don't have time for that right now. But this phrase of time is repeated. This phrase of time is repeated. And it reminds us of something that we're going to get to in a second, which is all of this is certain to God. All of this is certain to God. All of this has been mapped out by the Lord. The last thing of the five things that just kind of pique our curiosity in this chapter is what is referred to in verse 11 as the abomination of desolation. The abomination of desolation. Now we've got to make sure we actually understand what those two words mean. An abomination is something that is absolutely repulsive, evil, awful in the sight of the Lord. That is what an abomination is. So child sacrifice in the Old Testament is called an abomination. Something that never even entered the Lord's heart or mind. Sacrificing your child to a pagan god. That was an abomination. So an abomination is something that is absolutely wicked, thoroughly evil in the eyes of the Lord. Desolation, of course, means just waste. It's, 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 it's a word there that means like a desert land or like Jerusalem. When Jeremiah was writing Lamentations, it's utter waste. So there is a, an abomination that makes desolate. The abomination of desolation is spoken of here in verse 11. It's referred to again earlier in the book of Daniel, actually two times earlier. In Daniel chapter 9 verse 27 is reference to the abomination of desolation. And then in Daniel chapter 11 verse 31 talks about the abomination of desolation. The reference in Daniel chapter 11 31 most scholars agree, is probably referring to this awful, awful Seleucid king named Antiochus Epiphanes. In 167 BC, about 167 years before Christ was born, he went into the temple and he desecrated the temple by offering a pig in the holy place. He wanted to anger and infuriate the Jews as much as he possibly could. Now, of course, you know a pig according to the law of Moses, was an unclean animal. It was never to be eaten. It was never to be sacrificed. 
And so many believe that at least in part the abomination of desolation that Daniel is referring to, at least in Daniel chapter 11, is probably the year 167 B.C. when Antiochus Epiphanes offers a pig and spills his blood on the altar in the Jewish temple. Obviously something that was abominable in the eyes of the Lord, something that would have made desolate that holy place. But then when we jump to Matthew 24, we've mentioned Matthew 24 before. You want to get Jesus' spin on a lot of this, just read Matthew 24 and 25. Jesus also refers to the abomination of desolation. And he talks about it as something that's coming in the future. So obviously what Antiochus Epiphanes did in 167 B.C. was not the end of the abomination of desolation. Now Jesus speaks of it, it seems to be, within the context of the impending invasion of Rome in 70 A.D. and the destruction of the temple, which of course would have made it unclean and desolated it. But it also seems that in Matthew 24, Jesus is looking beyond 70 A.D. to the end of the age. So again, we don't have time to talk about it in detail here, but I believe the most effective way to read passages of Scripture like this are not to see them as fulfilled only at one moment in human history. But there are principles that keep manifesting themselves. There are powers and there are forces and there is evil that keeps manifesting itself. In Revelation 19, why is God talking about Babylon, an empire that the Medes and the Persians destroyed in 539 B.C.? Why is Babylon still coming up? Because there was a spiritual principle that stood behind Babylon that continues to manifest itself, will continue to manifest itself until the end of this age. That's why Babylon, the great prostitute, is spoken of in the book of Revelation. So the abomination of desolation, definitely Antiochus Epiphanes in 167, probably the Roman invasion in 70 AD, and probably something that's on the horizon as well, the man of lawlessness that Paul mentions in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. But all of this is just simply to kind of give us a little bit maybe more of a handle. It's not to answer with absolute authority and give 100% clarity about all these issues that we have raised because I don't believe that is possible. I don't believe that's possible. But let's go through this passage now a third time, and I am going to tell you what I am 100% convinced is absolutely clear from these verses. I have eight points. I don't know if I'll get through them all. But these are things that I think we can absolutely be certain of. Going back to chapter 12, verse 1, Daniel is told that this will be a time of distress. It will be a time of distress. Again, if you read Jesus in Matthew 24, it's impossible to hear him saying anything else. Jesus is saying that the entirety of the church age will be an age of distress. It will be an age of war and rumors of war. It will be an age of famine and pestilence and earthquake and blight and human lack. If you look at the four horsemen of Revelation as they go forth, it brings distress on the earth. One thing that we can be absolutely certain of is that until the end comes, there will be distress. We may not want it. We may hope for something better. We certainly are free to pray for something better. But as long as this age continues, there will be distress. 
Daniel saw it. Jesus promised it. And this is personal distress, personal distress in your life. This is global distress. The scriptures absolutely promise the entirety of the church age until this age ends will be an age that is marked by distress. Now, it certainly should dismay us. It certainly should motivate us to pray, but we should never be surprised by it. We should never be surprised by it. And we should never think that distress is going to end until this age ends. The end of distress will be the end of this age. A couple of weeks ago, I was talking to someone, I don't even remember who, we were joking around, and I said, yeah, if you have no problems, you're in heaven. You're not on any place on this planet. Or if you are, you're living in a fantasy world. If you have no problems, you are in heaven. And if this world has no distress, it is the new heavens and the new earth. We are absolutely promised that distress will continue to be a part of this creation until Jesus brings a new creation. Personal distress, global distress. Second thing is an incredible promise that's made right there on the heels of it in verse 1. All of those whose names are found written in the book, as we know now, the book of life, we are going to be brought to a safe place. You will survive the distress of this age if you are putting your trust in Christ. If you are putting your trust in Christ, you will survive the distress of this age. If you are not, all bets are off. The very next thing that Daniel heard was in an age of distress, all those whose names are found written in the book, they will be brought to a safe place. Now Jesus puts a very interesting spin on this in Luke chapter 21, verse 18. He is telling the disciples that they're going to experience a lot of distress. He's telling the disciples that they're going to be betrayed, sometimes by their closest family members and friends. They're going to be put on trial for nothing more than preaching the gospel and putting their faith in Jesus Christ. And in Luke chapter 21, verse 18, he says one of the most apparently self-contradictory statements in the gospels. He says, but not a hair of your head will perish. By standing firm, you will gain life. Now that sounds great, right? But look at what he says in verse 17. And all men will hate you because of me. Well, wait a second. That doesn't sound too good. And then he also says that some of you are going to be put to death. So how can it be that we're going to be hated, we're going to be put on trial, we're going to be you know, persecuted, some of us are even going to die, but not a hair of our head is going to perish? Well, you see, what Jesus is saying is your real life, no one can touch that. Your temporary life, your physical life, yes, that's going to experience all manner of distress, but your real life, no one can touch that. Jesus said, remember, don't fear the one who can destroy the body and after that has no more authority or power over you. Fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. So absolutely, we are going to live in an age of distress, 
And that distress is going to continue until the end of this age. But if we are putting our trust in Christ, our life in Christ cannot be ultimately touched by that distress. The enemy cannot take your salvation. The enemy cannot take your eternal life. And if you don't let him, the enemy cannot steal your joy. The enemy cannot steal your hope. The enemy cannot steal that ultimate abundant life that Jesus has given you. Yeah, the enemy can persecute you. The enemy can give you a really hard time in terms of physical calamity and distress. But ultimately, your life is in the Lord's hands. And we will be brought to a safe place, all of us who are putting our trust in Christ. You know, there's a branch of the church that's hoping for a rapture. Jesus, just please rapture me before those seven years of, of, of the tribulation come. I, I, I think that's not right. Don't have time to get into it right now. But I don't think that's right. I think what the Bible clearly teaches is that every one of us as believers is going to experience personal distress and global distress. And the grace of Christ that is given to us freely in Christ will always be enough to bring us to a safe place in him. Not just for him to snap his fingers and take us up to heaven before the bad stuff happens. I mean, you want to tell Ukraine that something worse is coming? Really? I mean, could you honestly stand before a Ukrainian citizen right now and say, oh, that, that's, not, that's not the tribulation, that's not the bad stuff. Really? You want to tell the millions of Africans that are starving? No, this isn't the bad stuff. The bad stuff, really you're going to say that? You see how, in fact, putting the seven-year tribulation as a pinprick before the return of Christ utterly diminishes and invalidates all of the human suffering that's taking place right now? It's just not right. It's not right. We are experiencing distress. We will continue to experience distress. But if we put our trust in Christ, we will always be brought to safety in him. We will always be brought to safety in him. One of the, the greatest truths that we can hold on to, verse 4, verse 9, Daniel is told, seal these things up. The word that's used there almost means to, to hide. Seal these things up. Daniel, this is not for you. Seal these things up. But but, but by being told them, God is declaring these things to Daniel. God is declaring what's going to happen, and then Daniel is told to seal them up. What, what at least in part God is saying is, this has been decreed, and this is how it's going to go. Now, just because we don't understand every minute aspect of how it's going to go and when it's going to go doesn't mean it has not been decreed and doesn't mean that it's not exactly going to go the way that God has chosen. This age is going to end in perfect accordance with God's perfect plan at his perfect time. Let me repeat that. The end of this age is going to come to a perfect conclusion in accordance with God's perfect plan at his perfect time. We need not wring our hands about how this whole thing is going to work out. We need not despair and discourage ourselves over what we see happening. This world is going to go exactly how the Lord has decreed it. The vision of Daniel has been sealed up. It cannot change. It cannot be altered. Putin can't alter it. Hitler can't alter it. Global warming can't alter it. No human demonic power can alter the immutable plans 
of God. And if I don't get anything else from Daniel 12, I definitely get that. And isn't that more than enough? Okay, I don't understand the 1,290 days. Okay, I don't understand the 1,335 days. But you know what I do understand is this is God's universe. And he is still in control of it. And it is going to conclude exactly the way he has decreed it will conclude. And his plan is perfect, and his timing is perfect. And he doesn't need to reveal every detail to me to make it more perfect. It is perfect. That's where we hang our hat. That's where we put our trust. Not in a myriad of charts and graphs and 75 books that you have to buy each one and spend 30 years of your life trying to make sense of them. I mean, you can do that if you want. I did that. I was a young guy in college and thought I could figure out all this stuff, and at the end I said, you know what, Lord, I can't figure any of this stuff out. Like Daniel, I didn't hear and not understand. I read and didn't understand. But then I started to understand, I think, what God wanted me to. Those who are wise will understand. Now, I will never claim to be wise. But one thing I do understand is these things that are clear to me. And the thing that we're talking about right now is that this is all going to go in accordance with God's plan. How, is, how long is it going to be? As long as God wants it to be. What's actually going to unfold? Everything that God wants to unfold. That's enough of an answer for me. 20 years ago, no way. 20 years ago, those answers would have totally been completely unsatisfactory to me. But now, 54 years old, hopefully a little wiser than I was 20 years ago, those answers are so incredibly satisfying. How long will it be exactly as long as the Lord wants it to be? Wow, Lord, I can rest in you. I can sleep well tonight. I can trust in you because it's going to be exactly as long as you want it to be. And what's going to unfold? Everything that the Lord wants. Wow, that's a great answer. I love that answer. I don't hate that answer. I love that answer. It's going to go exactly as the Lord has decreed. His perfect plan, his perfect timing. End of verse 4. We'll just do this real quickly because I know we're, we're getting a little long on time here. People are going to go to and fro. Knowledge is going to increase. That was a phrase that really gripped me. You know, I think what Daniel has told is, look, the end's not going to be as soon as you think it is. People are going to go to and fro. They're going to do their own thing, and knowledge is going to increase. Daniel, the end is not going to come as quickly as you think it is. Now, the New Testament puts two things in front of us that, again, seems totally contradictory, but they're not. Jesus says, my return is very, 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 very soon. We need to live each day as if it could happen today. Cancel your Mother Day lunch plans because Jesus may come this afternoon. But then the New Testament also says, but you know what? My return may be delayed. The parable of the ten virgins. What is Jesus saying there? I may not come as quickly as you think I'm coming. You know, there's biblical scholars that say the New Testament authors were completely confused because they thought they were going to actually live to see Jesus return. Wrong. They were doing exactly what Jesus wanted them to do. Live with an incredible expectation that it could happen today, realizing it might be longer than we expect. We've got to do both of those things because that's what the New Testament challenges us to do. So people are going to go to and fro. Knowledge is going to increase. The return of Jesus Christ is absolutely very soon. It's imminent. It's right there. It's at the door. It's right there, and you better live your life that way. But... It may not be as soon as you think. That's what the scriptures teach. Verse 10, I love verse 10. I love verse 10. Many are going to be purified. 
many are going to be made spotless. Many are going to be refined. What does an age of distress do? It gives the godly an opportunity to become more like him. I wish he could make me godly without distress. An age of distress is an age of opportunity. Jesus was brought to completion by what he suffered. For those of us who are in Christ, for those of us who are putting our trust in him, an age of distress is an age of opportunity. It's an opportunity for us to be refined. It's an opportunity for us to be made pure. It's an opportunity for us to be sanctified. No one wants to be in the fire. No one wants to be in the fire. But in the fire, my impurities are burned up. And so, church, we need to understand that distress is opportunity. Distress is opportunity for godly change. Many in this age of distress are going to be purified, are going to be made spotless, are going to be refined. And what's going to be happening right along with that? The wicked. Look there at verse 10. The wicked are going to keep on being wicked. It's what we saw before. The end of wickedness is the end of this age. The wicked are going to keep on being wicked. The book of Revelation repeats that refrain a couple of times. Let the righteous continue to be righteous. Let the wicked continue to be wicked. If you are looking for an end to wickedness in this age, you are looking for something that is never going to happen. It is never going to happen. There are going to be those of us who choose to be refined and purified and sanctified and changed in an age of distress. But there are many who are going to continue to increase in wickedness. Again, look at Jesus telling us the most powerful, most simple stories. Guy went out and planted some seeds, and then the enemy came and planted some weeds. And right there, the weeds and the wheat, they grow up together. The weeds and the wheat, they grow up together. Lord, should we pluck out the weeds? No. When did the weeds get plucked out? At the time of harvest, at the end of the age. There are two things that are happening right now and will continue to happen until the return of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is growing. It is growing relentlessly. It is growing unstoppably. It will become that stone, not cut by human hands out of the mountain, that will crush the image, the idol of every human nation. The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is growing. It cannot be stopped. But you know what else is growing along with it? Evil. That's what the New Testament says. There will continually to be an increase in evil, both kingdoms are growing. And that's why we can look at the world situation and say, man, we're worse than we were before, right? Yeah, we are. But then we look at the kingdom and like, wait a second, we're better than we were before, right? Yeah, we are. More people are saved right now than have ever been saved on the planet before. 
More people know Jesus Christ right now on this planet than have ever known Jesus Christ before. That's awesome. But what we see is both of these things. We see the unstoppable growth of the kingdom. We see the increase in evil. Right there in verse 10, one simple verse. In a time of distress, what's going to happen? Some are going to choose to be purified, sanctified, changed. Others are going to continue in wickedness. And in fact, wickedness is going to increase, but so is the kingdom. Three more real quick. These are quick. Verse 12, we've been hearing so much of this. Just amazing how often the Lord's been putting us in front of this. Verse 12, blessed are those who wait. Blessed are those who wait. We've talked a lot about it. Ed Hornock talked about it. Others have talked about it. We've talked about it in the Wednesday study. Blessed are those who wait. That's what, that, 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 that's what it says. I don't want to wait. I want everything now. I want everything yesterday. I want it to happen sooner, not later. But blessed are those who wait. If you are waiting for the Lord, if you are waiting on the Lord, you are absolutely in the right place. And just when you've made it to 1,290 days and you think you can't go a step further, Jesus says, no, go 1,335. That's my profound understanding of those two time frames. I'm sure it's totally wrong. But just when you think you can't persevere anymore, you've got to persevere a little more. That's basically what Jesus tells us. Blessed are those who persevere to the end. Blessed are those who keep pressing on. Blessed are those who wait. This age of distress will seek to destroy you. Destroy you, destroy your faith, destroy your hope, destroy your joy, destroy everything good that God has given you. And what does God say? Persevere. Wait for me. Wait for me. Wait for me. You've made it to 1290 days, but I need you to go to 1335. Wait for me. Blessed are those who make it to the 1335. Many of us are feeling like, wow, Lord, I've made 1290. Isn't that enough? Isn't that enough? Lord says, no, not quite yet, not quite yet. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. Make it to 1335. And man, when that moment comes, you're going to say it was all worth it. Every moment of waiting, every moment of distress was worth it. The title of this sermon we actually find in verse 13, also referenced in verse 9. Daniel, go your way. Daniel, go your way. Now, literally what the Hebrew says is, Daniel, go. Daniel, go. Now, that's a very interesting command to be given at the end of the book of Daniel. What does it mean, Daniel, go? And I think, I think the English translations are right in saying, Daniel, go your way. Well, part of what, what, what the Lord is saying is, look, I've shown you, Daniel, all I'm going to show you. It's the end of the book. It's his end of recorded revelations. You know, 7 to 12 is an odyssey of incredible revelation. If you haven't read it, read it. Beasts and animals and crazy stuff. But now at the end of Daniel chapter 12, he's told, you know what, Daniel? Go your way. We're done. Seal it up. It's not for you. It's for the future. Go your way. And I believe that's the same message that the Lord has for us. Spend your time in this. Consider it. Meditate on it. Chew on it. But don't make the entirety of your life consumed with trying to sort out all of these mysteries. Go your way. Live your life. Be faithful. Each day, get up. Do the things the Lord has asked you to do today. There's a place for this. We just spent an hour looking at this. There's a place for this. But don't let this consume your life either the fear of it or the uncertainty of it or wanting to understand it. Live your life. How did Daniel live his life? Uncompromising faithfulness to the Lord. Eat that food. No, I don't think I'm going to do that. 
Worship me. No, I don't think I'm going to do that. Stop praying to your God. No, I don't think I'm going to do that. Daniel, live your life. Live your life. Daniel, go your way. You've been given a revelation. These things will become more clear as we get closer to the end. But until that time, live your life. You know, there's people that actually like build rapture bunkers and stockpile stuff because they're trying to prepare for the rapture, you know, get ready for the, They're so consumed with the end that they forget to live their life today. Live today for Jesus. He is coming. He will come. It's very soon, but it may be longer than you think. Be faithful. Be faithful. Be faithful in what God has given you today. That's one of the clearest messages of Daniel chapter 12. I don't know what those days mean. I don't know what the abomination is. I don't, that's okay. I know today I have an opportunity to be faithful to Jesus, to live my life for him. Last thing, and we're going to end with this. Look at the promises that are made to Daniel in verse 13. You will rest. There is a rest that's coming. There is a rest that's coming. It's not in this life. It's an eternal rest. It's a Sabbath rest, as the author of Hebrews calls it. There is a rest that is coming. There's a rest that's coming for you, personally, individually. There is an end to your personal distress. There is. It's not in this life, but there is an end to your personal distress. It's not retirement. It's not financial security. It's not living on some beach, sipping, you know, cocktails for the last 10 years of your life. That's not the rest that Bible promises. There is a personal rest that each one of us will receive in Jesus Christ. But more than that, there is a global rest. But the world cannot be at rest until wickedness is ultimately destroyed. And wickedness is not going to be ultimately and finally destroyed until this age ends. But there is a perfect rest. There is a perfect rest that's coming for each one of us who are putting our faith in Christ, that's coming for the entire universe. The risen Christ will ultimately have his way, and every last iota of wickedness will be vanquished. And in his new creation, in his new heavens, in his new earth, there will be eternal rest. There will be eternal peace. And what is Daniel promised as well? Your place, your allotted inheritance, is secure in me. Jesus said, I'm going. I'm going to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, wouldn't I have told you? In my Father's residence, there are many, many places to live. And one of them, I'm making for you. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you so much for giving us this time together to spend a few minutes looking at Daniel chapter 12. And, and Lord, I just I thank you so much for just the amazing, <laughs> amazing visions and revelations of Daniel 7 to 12. And, and like Daniel, I can wholeheartedly say, okay, I read them, but I don't understand. But you know, Lord, there is so much that we can understand. And there are things that are just unmistakably, unshakably true and clear. And we thank you for those things.
And Father, may we absolutely dive in and explore the mysteries and consider the things that are probably a bit beyond our ability to understand, not, not shrink away from that, not ignore that, but God, may, may we focus and live in the truth that we do understand, to be able to live each day faithful to you, to choose to see a time of distress as a time of opportunity to be refined and purified by you, to know that you absolutely have this all sorted out, and it will ultimately go in perfect accordance with your perfect plan in your perfect time. And so, Jesus, we pray, come quickly, come quickly. But if you delay, may you find us faithful. And we ask this, Jesus, in your name alone. Amen.